Hi there, I'm Deb Crow, and I want to welcome you to season four of Imperfect, the heart-centered leadership podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with authentic and courageous leaders from all over the globe. You will learn from leaders you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolkit because leadership belongs to all of us. It is not measured by stature or title. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Imperfect Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. So here we are uh, entering season four. I still can't believe we're on season four. And I'm so delighted to have Dr. Neil Grunberg on the show today. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. His bio is so amazing. And I just said to him, I'm going to read a little bit. And then I'm going to ask him to share his story. His background is just phenomenal. So Neil is a professor of military and emergency medicine and professor of neuroscience in the Uniformed Services University School of Medicine, professor in the USU Graduate School of Nursing, and the director of research and development in USU Leadership, Education, and Development Lead Program, which is in Maryland. Neil also serves as the director of faculty development for the Department of Military and Emergency Medicine. And he's also the chair of faculty development for the Department of Military and Emergency Medicine. And as the chair, faculty mentoring and development, the Department of Anesthesiology. So Neil, there's just so much. We could have a whole show just on everything that you do, in addition to being a heart-centered leader. Share with our listeners, and and we're so proud to tell you we are in 65 countries after three seasons, which we're super proud about. And I just found out from my team that we're ranked 3% globally. So there's lots of quality people going to be listening in here. So tell us a little bit of your background in addition and a little bit of Neil's story, if you would. No, Deb, that's very kind. And again, congratulations on coming into season four and the valuable service you provide. Well, thanks again, and, and welcome to the to every listener. My name is Neil Grunberg. As uh, Deb Crow has mentioned, I work at the Uniformed Services University School of Medicine, Graduate School of Nursing, Bethesda, Maryland, in the United States, where we train people to be physicians, nurses, psychologists, dentists, to both serve in the U.S. Armed Forces and Public Health Service, and we help contribute to the health of both the nation and global health and understanding. Personally, I'm trained as a medical psychologist and neuroscientist. Medical psychology, distinct and different from psychiatry, is the study of behavior, what we do, cognition, what we believe and think, and motivation, why we act and think as we do, and how it affects physical and mental health. So it affects all of us, our eating behavior, with our nutrition, exercise, stress, sleep, sexual behavior, social interaction, every behavior that we all engage in. And of course, how it affects anxiety, depression, stress responses, as well as various diseases or behaviors. But over the years, as I've been privileged to help do research to provide information about drug abuse, drug addiction, 
traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress. Over my career, which has now spanned more than 40 years, in the last 10 years, I've been asked by my university to focus actually on the topic that, Deb, you, you have focused on. That's leadership, but also leadership, followership, team building. As medicine, just like so many fields, has become what we say is a team sport. Individuals can't do it alone, as well as the fact that the practitioner interacts with the patient, their significant others, all sorts of specialists, physicians, nurses, psychologists, social workers, physical therapists. How do we communicate better? How do we understand each other more? So I've been asked to bring my own experience in these areas. Part of what I bring to the approach that I've developed, the fact that I also grew up being a musician. I was a drummer and a jazz drummer. And I only mention that because I hope that we all take from our other life experiences, lived experiences. And for me, understanding the importance of ensemble work. As a drummer, I loved my role in setting a tempo and the beat and the, if you will, like heart center leadership, the heartbeat of any band or ensemble. But also knowing as a drummer when to play loud, when to play medium, when to play soft, and when not to play at all allowing others to flourish, others to encourage, others to tell their own story, sing their own song. So the way I approach an understanding of leadership and the development of each of us ourselves, both as leaders and as members of the team or followers, is of equal importance. Your, your background and richness. I remember our first conversation. I think we were going to talk for 30 minutes and we talked for 90. Because uh, I often share on the show, prior to moving into coaching, I was a neurotrauma case manager. And some of the things that you just talked about and integrating both children and adults with acquired brain injury back into life, or sometimes if it was catastrophic, just back to a little bit of autonomy and, and all the, the nuances and processes that went with that. It was my favorite population to work with. And so we, we share a great love for neuroscience. And I'm so delighted you're here, Neil. We're going to have a great conversation. Oh, thank you, Deb. That's very kind. So you have published over 220 papers. Yes. Thank you for the richness that you're bringing to the, to the world with your brilliance and expertise and, and the research. So my first question is, you've, you've written a lot about leader and leadership, and it's a conversation you and I have, have gotten into. And I think you just made a comment a minute ago about, you know, we're all in different sectors, but the connection is we're all in the people business and we're bringing our cognition to that. So how would you frame or explain, again, in layman's terms, because this is the fun part of the show is, is we have people with so much expertise and education, but we always just have a layman's term conversation so everybody can understand. The question, Neil, is, is a leader always present in leadership? And, and what did you get out of the research you did when you were trying to define the name, the role, and, and how they kind of integrated together? Well, Deb, those are superb questions, and I hope I can do them justice. 
I think one of the important things to understand in, in responding to, to these questions you raise is to understand the shift over decades, if not centuries. Simply put, it was long thought that leaders were born, not developed. It was long thought that leaders were a particular type of person, what was actually called a century or so ago by Thomas Carlyle as great man theory that evolved to great person theory. But the idea is that leadership was focused on an individual, knowledgeable, charismatic, powerful. Over the decades, we've come to understand that although that can be one type of leader, that's really not encompassing all the types of leadership and being leaders. Leadership, if there's one word to describe it, it is influence, how individuals can influence others. But that doesn't mean one needs to, in a directive or authoritarian way, tell them what to do. Can influence by motivating, by encouraging, by listening, by being kind. It depends on the people involved, the situation involved, as well as understanding one's own personality and the personality of those with whom we interact. So what my colleagues and I have come to understand is we really focus and say there is not one single type of leader style. Instead, we all should understand ourselves having great self-awareness, but that self-awareness includes internal self-awareness, understanding my own personality, my own beliefs, my own biases, my strengths, my weaknesses. Additionally, developing external self-awareness. Do I understand how others perceive me, which may or may not be accurate with the way I perceive myself, but that must be understood. But then we suggest that to really develop as leaders, we need to know the who of leadership. We refer broadly as character, my personality, my beliefs, my understanding, my strengths, my weaknesses. The what of leadership are competencies in certain roles, called role-specific. Am I a musician? Am I an attorney? Am I a carpenter? Am I a teacher? Am I a parent? Am I a child, a, a learner, a student? That role, as well as developing our leadership competencies that transcend roles. What are those? Problem solving, decision making, emotional intelligence, motivating others. Now that's where many leadership concepts end. So we add a couple of other dimensions. We believe that in addition to knowing who you are and what you do, one must focus on the third C context. When and where do I do it? What's the culture, the situation, the people around me? Are there time limitations? So there are urgent decisions to be made or does one have plenty of time? The fourth C that we bring out, although it is a competence, we believe it is so important we pull it out. Communication. We refer to communication as the how of leadership. But communication is both sending and receiving information to achieve understanding. And one of the things that I like to point out is that the secret to excellent leadership and followership 
reception or listening is hidden in the word listen. If you take the letters of the word listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and rearrange them, there are two very interesting words, and list and silent. And list, do you engage everyone, respect everyone, pull all the information together, and do you know when to be silent, as I say, as a drummer, when not to play, to encourage input? The next point that we've learned over the years is many people who talk about leadership appropriately focus on the development of the individual. But we think that's just the beginning. So we also believe one needs to develop at four different psychosocial levels. Our own level, a person. Then in a dyad, as Deb, you and I are talking now, interpersonally, individual with a friend, with a colleague, with a spouse, for us in healthcare, with a patient. The next level is with the team, much more complex. And then the final or other broader level is the organizational or systems level. We believe that these things, again, develop oneself as a leader when you are, have the responsibility to have a vision and direct a mission. But leaders don't exist without meaningful followers. And within each of us, we should be following. In, in your model, for example, of heart-centered leadership, I know, Deb, that you emphasize servant leadership, serving the others. Well, in that sense, the leader is a follower. So we believe that these four Cs, character, competence, context, communication, who, what, when, and where, how, the personal, interpersonal, team, organizational level, all needs to be embraced and developed honestly with ourselves and we believe one can keep developing in order to achieve optimal well-being for the individual and for the good of those with whom we have the privilege to work and enjoy friends, family, as well as those with whom we have conflict. I love so much about that model. And I, I love the, the richness of when you said, if we look at history and what people would think, that leaders were born, not developed. And I think one of the misconceptions that I see a lot, especially in executives and C-suites, is they think when they get to that level of stature title, there's a big weigh-in and an attachment to their identity, their worth and worthiness, and they think they don't have to be further developed. And I, I think I'm going to defer because uh, this is going to segue nice into my last leadership question, Neil. So I'm going to I'm going to defer the rest of this because I don't want to take away of where this conversation is going to go. But I know it's one that the listeners love talking about. So I'm going to move to my second question. It has permanent residency on the show. We've asked over 250 leaders globally this question: What imperfections does Neil bring to his heart-centered leadership? <laughs> All, all candor and laughter is permitted. Uh, no, now I could take hours and hours to answer that as my wife and grown children would go <laughs> on. But, but, but really, that's, I appreciate that question. And, and, um, and really, it's my respect and trust for you and your, and your listeners, and I will answer it. I think my most challenging imperfection that I need to and I continue to grapple with is my 
passion or perhaps obsession, but need to help others. Mm. The mistake that leads me to is to do too much for others who ask of me. And I'll use this example, one of the things I teach about adaptation. If one is crossing a busy street with a three-year-old child, Mm. how should you lead them? Well, you should hold their hand tight, explain to them, and essentially be an authoritarian. Crossing a busy street with a 13-year-old, if you use that approach, they'd rebel, they'd be annoyed, they'd pull, pull away. Both your relationship would suffer, but more importantly, they could be in danger. But you can't let them go completely on their own with their you know, ear pods in, and they're not paying attention, or on their phone. So when you move to more of a shared or democratic approach to determine when to cross the street. When crossing the street with your 33-year-old friend, child, etc., you're not going to direct them. You're not going to, let's have a discussion. Clearly, mutual respect and a laissez-faire of the three original traditional kinds of leadership. The point I hope I'm making that's clear is to adapt. And back to my imperfection, it is a struggle for me to let the hand go of the people who I have the privilege and responsibility to lead. But I know that's often the best thing to do is to let them go, let them fall. My, I have four grown kids now, late 20s through late 30s, and I've tried to adapt my parenting style as well. But it's a struggle because I was raised to believe that I should deliver, that I've been fortunate. So to allow others to be, to allow others to make their own decisions, make their own mistakes, that's my biggest imperfection struggle. Well, you're in good company because I, I join you in that same imperfection. And this question has brought such great dialogue among listeners and comments because people get to a certain level. Someone could look at your credentials and think, wow, Neil's like that. It shows all of our imperfections and how human we all are. And you know, one of the traits that I promote with my model is that ability to fail forward. And we have to model that not only for our children, for our colleagues, our coworkers, our friends. And again, it's it's being able to bask in that imperfection, which we all have, because no one's perfect. It's an intangible reality. And I think going back to your point from question one, all leaders, all people, all of us should continue to learn and grow and evolve and develop. And I love that. So yes, there's a place for boundaries, but it's hard with your children and even your grandkids. We got into a great chat. I remember with another guest that I had and he said, it's really, really hard, but I know it's going to help them grow. So that's, that's a great imperfection. I share that with you. <laughs> okay, my third question one of the things that I'm seeing globally, and I would love for you to weigh in on this, is I think we're starting to see a great presence of the effects of COVID across organizations in the world. And one of the things that has cropped into my kind of wheelhouse, if you will, is a lot of people are back to work in some capacity, whether it's in-person, hybrid, remote, 
but there's a deep sense and it's almost a visceral sense for some people, Neil. How do you feel we should approach loneliness in the workplace? And I'm seeing it, again, through my vantage point with the overachievers on a team, the ones that you don't think you have to be concerned for. And given your expertise in the medical world with psychology and all the hats that you've worn and the research you've done, what I'd like you to weigh in on it post-COVID and, and some of the strategies that you feel would be helpful for leaders to really use the model you spoke about. And again, only in the context of loneliness. Yes. Now, a timely question, because also I, I know that, Deb, you're coming from Canada, so you may or may not be aware that just this week, the uh, Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Vivek Murthy, has actually identified loneliness as a grave concern and one which he is seeking and, and inviting input on as well. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to comment on it. But to put it in context, of course, implicit, but it should be made explicit. Human beings are social animals. That's not a small point. All animals are not social animals, although they require interaction for appropriation and for other roles. Some are more social than others. The animals are traveling packs rather than alone. Human beings perhaps are the most extreme social animal. That means that we need each other for more than utilitarian purposes. We need each other be utilitarian for doing things. It takes quite a few people to have the strength to lift a given object or to build a house or engage in activities, to engage in productive support, to engage in the downside or defense or warfare. It takes other people. But also with your question, the concept of loneliness also reveals or make salient the fact that we psychologically need other people. So now as you talk about the post-COVID, and, and I presume we mean not the disease itself or the coronavirus, but the fact that we went into a remarkable global isolation to protect ourselves from this highly contagious disease state until it came under control. It also interestingly pushed many of us into the 21st century of technology, which we weren't fully using. The video we're using now, the communication. So as we move from that to hybrid, we also have the attraction of sitting alone. I'm sitting now in, in my home that my wife and I have, where we raise our children. I lecture now, oddly, all over the world from this former bedroom of one of my grown children. So we get to, what do we do about it? Well, here's where I think we need to really examine in ourselves, in our groups or our teams, in our society, what do we each need? That is, we all need social interaction, but we're quite different, depending on personalities, extroversion, introversion, and other personality characteristics, as well as what we engage in. So right now we've struggled with, do we go back to workplaces and interact in communities and places of worship, or do we do this all online? Well, interestingly, now that you bring up mental health, 
reports of various mental health problems in the United States, certainly in the data I know best, anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation increased dramatically over the last few years. Was that because of loneliness or COVID? Who knows? But it increased dramatically. Yet here's the other side. Individuals' willingness to seek behavioral health and mental health help, care, and support and actually attend the session with counselors and therapists also increased dramatically because people avoided the stigma of going to see the psychological counselor or therapist, also the cost, the travel, the time. And so this is a funny one where we've now thought when people are alone, there's a reason to embrace the aloneness and find its value for thought, for contemplation, for meditation. And there are reasons to seek others, social engagement, for happiness, for social comparison, for affiliation, for mutual support. So I believe what we need to do is we should now, instead of trying to make all places have all things, we should realize when we go to our workplaces or our community area or the like, we should really appreciate and value using it for social engagement. For example, I live in a very nice suburban housing community, but except for interacting with people when we walk our dog, over the last few years, we've barely seen anyone. This last weekend, several of the community members, leaders, created something we've literally never done here, and we've lived in this neighborhood for 38 years. We had a community festival and celebration. It was astonishingly successful. All ages, all ethnicities, all races, all religious pursuits, hundreds of people who'd never met each other in many cases are old friends. There was a, such a joyous event. People were so stunned. We shouldn't do this every day or every week. But should we do this a few times a year? So again, perhaps, and I apologize, a bit long-winded answer to your important question. But now, when I used to go to work five, six, seven days a week, I'd race around to do all my things and, and all my studying or see who I needed to. And I almost resented, I actually did, I met, resented people dropping by my office or going to the cafeteria. Now that I go to, into the office much less frequently, once, twice a week, I realize I have to completely change my mindset of what I'm to get out of that engagement and perhaps more importantly, what I should contribute to that engagement, particularly as a senior faculty member. That although I might not feel I need to go in, I need to go and check in on other faculty and colleagues and connect with people. So I think we need to all re-examine when we're alone, instead of suffering loneliness, appreciate the quiet or the solitude or playing music or having a TV on, whatever your preference is, and make it your meditative recentering time. But then when you go into the community, even if it's going to the grocery store, to respectfully and politely and with a smile, engage with the server or politely open a door for another person. 
and really focus on expanding our social engagement when others are present. That's the way I'm thinking. Yeah, I I love that. And I it's not long-winded. It's so perfect. I'm the person in the grocery store that would ask you a question. Like I would say, hey, Neil, that's such a great shirt. I love the blue. Where did you get it? Or maybe you're holding an item, but I'm also very intuitive. So if I see an older person that I might've known, or maybe I see somebody from church, sometimes I know that I'm going to be the only interaction that they're going to have that day. And when I see any of my elderly female friends from church, and some of them are shut-ins now because of physical function, I will go and see them. And a hug is not a hug anymore. Like it's a hug and a hold. And I just stay there and I can feel them patting my shoulder. And I just stay until they're done because I know they need that. See, now you... Me wish that I lived in your neighborhood though, Deb. <laughs> but I, yeah, but you know what, my, like you, my neighborhood has turned over a few times and we're starting to get young families back now. And if you don't make an effort, I think people are still a little shy-ish from COVID. Um, but in terms of like the grocery store or a restaurant, I'm always been a great tipper because I used to do that when I was in university. Once a server, always a server. But I always say, how's your day going? And it's kind of like somebody wants to talk to me other than ordering the food or, you know, I always, and it's funny because my husband laughs and he's like, you always chat to people. And I'm like, I need them as much as they need me. Like I'm re, I'm filling up my tank, right? So not long-winded at all. I, I love it. And I love that, your community had such a beautiful event and I'm I'm starting to see that happen in my own community. I can honestly say I've only really been back out in the community and with clients since January. And it was weird at first. Um, any event that has food, not everybody wants to like be touching a communal charcuterie tray or there's still that nuance of, oh, I'm a little apprehensive to do that, but that's okay. We're together and we're no longer social distancing. We're physical distancing in a social setting, which is much different. Yeah. So I'm starting to see more of a win-win there, but I, I love that. I, I'd like to live in your community if you're going to yeah. be having big events like that. Okay, my fourth question is going to be in addition to my first question in your model. So think about your four Cs. And I also wanted to say as an aside As a young girl, I think I was like 11 or 12, my Irish Nana taught me what you said about the word listen. And I did not know about enlist. She taught me about silent. So you've just taught me another word now within that. And how does that not align so well with the four C's? That's that's crazy. I love it. So think about what you said for question one. How do we deal with a leader in leadership who does no longer see the purpose for development because ego has been attached to that identity we talked about. And really it's aligned with their identity and their worth and worthiness. How would you navigate that? This is kind of a culmination of everything we've talked about so far in question one, two, and three. 
how would you even navigate that? Because that is still very much a predominant trait among leaders. And like we had already talked about, the sector doesn't matter because we went to the borders of technology and we're all in the people business. So it doesn't matter where we work or who we work for. How do, how do we navigate the leader's ego within leadership? Yeah, interesting. It's, um, you've raised something that I, we broadly refer to now as the concerns about BIT leaders. So here, B-I-T, there are three categories of difficult leaders. Bad, ineffective, or toxic. People will say toxic leader, but that's actually one type. Bad, fortunately, is rare. Someone who is morally or ethically evil. However, that can come about either because that's the essence of who they are and grown up. Fortunately, rare, but unfortunately, we certainly have characters in history we can point to. We can also have bad leaders as a result of mental health problems or misuse or abuse of various drugs or medications so that their reality is distorted and they therefore engage in bad behavior. If that's the leader one's dealing with, one either has to, frankly, remove the leader or leave the situation. There's little that can be done. Fortunately, rare. Of the difficult leaders to negotiate, as you say, I believe that most are in the category that we refer to as ineffective leaders. With ineffective, why? Maybe ineffective because they will not listen, ineffective because they're insecure, ineffective because they're narcissists, they believe they know everything, but most commonly ineffective because they are absent, either physically absent or psychologically absent. The ineffective leader, I believe, can be worked with some, particularly if one can figure out Here's where the followers of the team need to understand their potential power and to try to frame around that leader a way of communicating either to shape the behavior of the leader, reinforce the positive and, and reduce the likelihood of the negative, or the followers, the team, if it, if it includes individuals who want to stay, need to learn to communicate more with each other and frankly, operate effectively without the leader. The third kind of or leader or toxic leader can be, again, those who are purposely so saying mean things, being outrageous. If it cannot be stopped, one needs to leave that leader or remove them if one can't. Or if it ends up, it's because of their own imposter syndrome or insecurity or other difficulties one, you know, frankly, the, treat the leader the way we would deal with a child or a, a dog, reinforcing the positive and ignoring or trying to diminish the negative. The more interesting kind of toxic leader is actually a wonderful person who would never think of themselves as having a toxic influence, but they do so on a group or a team because they play favorites and not a matter of very extreme. But instead, they're just more comfortable with a few members of the team who they've known for years because they came up to the rank or they have 
personal interests of sports or gardening or music or art that they just share in common. And so they run their team and they're a good, competent, nice person, but only go to lunch with one or two people, creating a us or them. Those individuals, that type of toxicity can be pointed out. So again, it seems to me, I believe that this is where the followers need to understand their influence. And if the followers align, so almost like the famous, you know, a sports team, I think of more youth sports because I also do some sports psychology. Sports teams, sometimes teams just not reacting. Coach, distant maybe in age, personality, authority, keeps trying things, whether criticizing or support, nothing works. Well, this is where team meetings make a difference. Does the team understand its power? So when dealing with the situations you, you know, you've just described, I believe we each as followers must step up and take the risk and practice something that the scholar Ira Chalef talks about. He has a wonderful phrase, courageous followership. Does a follower learn and have the courage to stand up against the leader, not just fighting conflictual way, but figuring out how to deal with, but also does a follower have the courage to support the leader or to take these steps? So that's where I've actually moved to the way I'm recently talking about leadership and followership, not as two different people, not as two different roles, but as aspects of ourselves. And I now refer to it as our own, the yin yang of leadership and followership. We, within ourselves, we are both leaders and followers based on the role and situation. We are perhaps of the opportunity, privilege or cast predominantly in one role or the other, but willing to shift. That's the way I think to deal with the difficult or challenging leader. Well, and as a yoga teacher, I I love to pull that in and and really hone in and talk about mindful leadership, which is similar languaging. Yes. And we need to be both. We need to be fully integrated with our own self-awareness because we shift and pivot throughout the day depending on activity, who we're talking to. I really love that. Okay, I'm going to switch to what I call my fab four. <laughs> These are just four fun questions. We want to see what's sitting on the top of that brilliant mind. Brings a little bit of laughter. First question, if I asked your family or friends to describe you in one word, what would it be? Intense. <laughs> See, we share something else. <laughs> so love that. Okay, second question. What is your favorite leadership word or phrase that you use on repeat? Influence. I love that. Third question, who is a leader who inspires you? And a little bit of context, this person could be living, they could have passed away. Who's top of mind for you? Why do they inspire you? And if you could have dinner with them, what would the conversation be? That's a very interesting question. I would, I'm would. i actually surprised at my own answer. What jumps to my mind is Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> so much has been written about him. So much was written by him as well as his struggles with depression and his own physical ailments. So if I really could meet and talk with Lincoln, I'd love to understand whatever he was willing to share, how 
he got through it all. It's interesting. He's come up on the show a lot over the last few seasons. And again, that that emotional intelligence, but more importantly, the depths of his emotional resilience because of everything he had. So yeah, that's, he's come up before. So you're in good company. Okay, I'm going to have, before I have you close out the show, I'm just going to say, I always love our conversations. We always have what I like to call a intellectual stimulating conversation. I love bantering back and forth. I have to give a shout out to Dr. MJ because she introduced us and we had her on the show and always love talking to her about anything to do with belonging in the workplace. And it's always a delight, Neil. Thank you for taking the time and, and sharing your expertise with our listeners today. But Deb, thank you and your listeners and for all the wonderful knowledge and experience that you're sharing. And I am always at your service. Thank you so much. I'm going to have you close out the show by finishing this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is... Vital. Thanks so much for joining me today on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the show today and have learned some new tools for your leadership toolkit from our amazing Heart-Centered guest. If you like the show... Feel free to give us a rating and a review, and we always welcome your feedback anytime. Looking to master the art of heart? Head over to our website at debcrow.com and watch out for Deb's new book, The Heart-Centered Leadership Playbook, coming in September. 